Well, good morning, church. It's so good to have you here, and especially those watching online. I know it's super cold out. I appreciate Chad's weather forecast. I was going to say uh, my real feel is colder than the stare of a parent with a three-year-old after a 60-minute Josh Gerber sermon, especially with no children's church. So we'll hope that doesn't happen today, right? <laughs> but very glad uh, you're here today. If you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in the book of Jonah. We'll be looking at chapters three and four. Uh, one of our ushers will be happy to hand you a copy of God's Word if you'd like. Um, you can feel free to use your table of contents to be able to find that. It's in the Old Testament, kind of tucked away in there. So we'll be looking at Jonah chapters 3 and 4 this time. I'd like to begin um, with Taylor Swift. And Taylor Swift, uh, certainly not a role model by any stretch of the imagination, neither a good theologian. But in God's common grace, there are times in which she even hits on some very important theological truths. And in one of her songs, she sings, Hi, I'm the problem, it's me. I'm the problem, it's me. And, and that certainly is a very profound theological truth in such a world that we live in today where the problem is so often outside of us. It's it's our biology, it's, it's someone else, and so the solution is a prescription or some kind of a plan for shutting off those other problems in our life, but it certainly couldn't be me. And so Taylor Swift, really in that song, hits at the heart of the problem, it, it's me, I'm the problem. Well, in our text today in Jonah chapter 3 and 4, we're going to see Jonah running into that same dilemma of who's the problem? And Jonah's answer throughout this book has unfortunately been, it's not me, it's the sailors, or it's the Ninevites, or even today as we'll see, it's actually God is the problem. Now, a couple weeks ago, we looked at chapters 1 and 2, and there we saw the start of this runaway prophet. Uh, we saw Jonah, who was unwilling to obey God, and we contrasted him with the greater Jonah, Jesus, who willingly and perfectly uh, obeyed for us. We saw the consequences of running away from God in terms of this sense of abandonment, this forsakenness and isolation that we experience as we move away from God and His plan. And then we were encouraged by the fact that we have a greater Jonah who uh, experienced the most forsakenness and the most abandonment for us so that we would not have to go through that. As I mentioned last time, the question in the, in the book of Jonah is really not, who is Jonah? But who is God, and what do I learn about Him? So I'd like to go even a step further than that today um, and say that the book of Jonah is meant to point us to a greater Jonah. It's meant to point us to find that its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So while we certainly do want to seek to understand this passage in its historical context and to whom it was written, we can't stop with that. You see, we want to ask, how does this book fit into the entire storyline of the Bible? How does it find its completion in Jesus Christ? The Bible is both Christocentric and Christotelic, meaning the, the center of the Bible is all about Jesus, and the Bible points us to the ultimate end, Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of everything. So what that means is that Jesus Christ can't simply be the appendix to this message today or the appendix to God's redemptive plan. No, Jesus Christ is at the heart of God's redemptive plan. Apart from Jesus Christ, we would have no redemptive plan. So my hope, to you, my hope for you today is that you come ready to experience this greater Jonah, 
that you're coming ready to rejoice, ready to revere, ready to run to, and ready to respond to the greater Jonah, who is the ultimate example of God's grace to rebellious sinners. Are you ready for that? Okay, well, if so, please arise at the reading of God's Word, and we'll be beginning in chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city." Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you do pity the plant which, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? You may be seated. Let's begin by prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come unto you this cold morning, but we're thankful that we can be warmed by your word. We're thankful that we can hear this opportunity, this second chance you've given the prophet to go and speak. And it takes us back and reminds us of all the many second chances that you have given us, Lord, second, third, fourth, and so on, of opportunities to obey you. We're thankful for the greater Jonah who has gone before us to enable us to respond and live in such a way that we could not. So, May you fill our hearts today with the truth of this, and may we rejoice, revere, and run to you, Lord, as you have called us to do. It's in this we pray. Amen. So, 
the last time we've looked at Jonah to begin with, and, and now we get to this story as it picks back up in chapters 3 and 4, and we think of this theme of second chances, second chances. I'm sure that all of us are glad for second chances. Anyone not glad for a second chance at something? Second chances are always a good thing. And isn't, isn't it such a good way in which God has given us many second chances? As we will see today, God is not done with Jonah yet. No, he's got another opportunity for Jonah. In chapter 3 now, uh, as we pick up again, Jonah has been vomited by the fish up on the shore. And so now he's going to head to Nineveh uh, for his second opportunity. Uh, just as a side note, some of you have been wondering, what did Jonah say to the people who were asking him why he smelled so fishy? Nineveh business. But our main point today is this. Jesus, the greater Jonah, is the ultimate example of God's grace to rebellious sinners. Jesus, the greater Jonah, is the ultimate example of God's grace to rebellious sinners. That's the main point we'll see. And what we're going to be looking at then is how do we live in light of that truth? What do we do in light of that, knowing that that is true? And so what we'll see is, uh, with our points, is they will be geared in that direction as to how we're to respond to that truth. So, for example, the first point is rejoice in the righteousness of a greater Jonah who rescues perishing sinners. So rejoice. Rejoice in the righteousness of the greater Jonah who rescues perishing sinners. So throughout the book of Jonah, uh, we are running into perishing people, right? And last week as we looked at it, the sailors were perishing. Uh, we saw Jonah was, was perishing. Um, but we also saw God bringing his deliverance and, and rescue to them. Now today, we see that the Ninevites are on the brink of perishing. But again, God has sent Jonah to, to provide them with a rescue opportunity. And so as Jonah heads to Nineveh, here in, in cha uh, chapter 3, if you look at verse 3, you see that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Now, how many of you have a footnote in your Bible with that verse right there? Anyone have a footnote? Some of you have a footnote there, and it says... Um, a city, a great city to God, a great city to God. So that's really a more accurate way of saying it. Nineveh was a great city to God. So it's a way of saying that Nineveh doesn't belong to the ruler of Assyria or the king of Nineveh or, or anyone like that, but Nineveh belongs to God. God cares about cities. How often do we think about that? How often do we think of, say, Mackinac, for example, a town great to God? or Peoria, a city great to God? Probably not very often. We can easily lose sight of God's love for people and the desire of God to demonstrate his love and compassion to them. So Jonah heads into Nineveh here. Uh, it's described as a three days journey. And this phrase is a little bit tricky to understand. It could mean a, a couple of different things. It could be used as a figure of speech, indicating that it's a pretty long trek to get to Nineveh. It uh, could also be an exaggeration of the size of the city. This is a pretty big city here. It could be referring to the city's proximity, uh, its close position to destruction and death, because that three days language brings back the fish experience where Jonah was close to death. But any way you cut it, this was clearly a city that was getting ready to face God's judgment and destruction. So Jonah here then enters the city and with five Hebrew words begins to proclaim God's message. 
What's strange is that, God, is that Jonah doesn't tell them what they can do to avert this destruction. There's not a lot there, right? Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. There's, there's not a lot more context to it than that. Now, it may raise some questions about did Jonah leave anything out or not, but let's just say he said everything that God wanted him to say. But what I want you to notice is no one questions the rightness, the, the justice of God in doing that. No one challenges that. So the Ninevites, for example, don't, they don't question the existence of God. They don't question the rightness of this coming judgment against them. They don't try to bring a court case against God. The only hope they have is not in their repentance, but in the mercy of God. And of course, Jonah and the Israelites would have been the first ones to shout out the rightness of God for the coming judgment against the Assyrians. They would have been right there. God, you are right in doing this. This mention of 40 days here, that would have brought to their minds a couple of things. For one, the flood. If you remember the flood, there, were, there was 40 days and, and that was a, a time of judgment. It would also have brought into mind this 40 days of Moses on the mountain interceding for the people of Israel. So both of those passages involve God's judgment in a large number of people. Why the flood? Well, the flood reminded the audience of the earth's depraved condition. It reminded them of God's justice for judging the earth for all this wickedness. And Israel's story begins not with Israel, but with God who deals in covenant relationship to all of humanity. So the flood was a reminder of God's covenantal goal to bless all of God's elect people, both Jew and Gentile. The incident of the golden calf, that 40 days, would have reminded them of another time when Israel was about to be destroyed for their sin. But what do we have there? We have Moses, the prophet, interceding for his people, fasting for 40 days uh, so that they would not um, be, would, so that they would not perish, and the result was that they didn't, that they were saved. So the 40 days language sets us up with two possible outcomes. If they don't repent, they will perish like the people in the flood, but if they do repent, God will spare his judgment like he did with Israel in the golden calf incident. Next, Jonah warns them that the city will be overturned. So this brings to mind Sodom and Gomorrah. They would have picked up on that overturning language. The, the verb overturned can also mean reformed. So again, there's two possible outcomes that the author is setting us up for what's going to happen. Either the city will be destroyed by a physical overturning of the city, or they will be reformed and spared. The emphasis then shifts to the citizens of the city. So if you look there in chapter 3, you see the response of the citizens of that city. And believe, that's the first word placed in the Hebrew sentence. It's an emphasis on its, on its importance. So believed, the people believed there. Only a work of God could accomplish such belief. I mean, it certainly wasn't Jonah's words or Jonah's attitude that produced this transformation, right? I mean, Jonah has been pretty much doing everything he can not to go there. And even when he gets there, it's like he goes a day into the city and it's kind of like, that's it. But despite all of that, the people believe. What an amazing work of God right there. So they respond with fasting, putting on these garments of sackcloth. Those are outward signs of an inward reality, that inward repentance. And no matter what a person's position was before, right now everyone is in the very same place. So Nineveh's hierarchy of power and authority has been set aside. It's, it's all about repentance. 
And then you see word reaching the king. So the author structures the story like this to show that the people are not repenting and doing these things because the king told them to. They're doing it despite they're doing it independently of that. So even the king hears that and the king uh, issues this command for people to do some things right there. So God made sure that this message get, gets to the king regardless of what Jonah does or doesn't do. Notice in the story here, he's called the king of Nineveh instead of the king of Assyria. So God is humbling these human hierarchies. He's reminding everyone that he is the ultimate king. If you take a look at the king there then, um, in chapter 3, uh, verses, uh, verse 6 right there, you'll notice um, the steps that the king takes to humble himself. He first rises from his throne, meaning he steps away from the symbol of his authority. Secondly, he removes his robe, which would symbolize his wealth and prestige. Third, he would replace it with sackcloth, showing himself to be just like everybody else. And then fourth, he repents in the dust, again, demonstrating that he's not different than anyone else. The king then issues a command that everyone would participate in this repentance and pray to God. Notice how he also calls for personal repentance. Each person was to repent of his or her wicked behavior and the violence performed by their hands. Even the animals were to participate. So this was no casual repentance that we see here. But as I've said, the king and the people rightly recognize that if God's judgment is to be averted, it will only come by a merciful king, by the true ruler of the city. The king of Nineveh is no righteous ruler, is he? This guy is one evil dude. But as we will see in a moment, none of us are righteous. All of us, at least one point in time, are also perishing sinners on the brink of destruction, and apart from a righteous one, we have no hope either. So how do we see the righteousness of a greater Jonah, the one who saves perishing sinners here? Well, let's start first by looking at the failure of Jonah, and then by moving on to the success of the greater Jonah. So Jonah, like Moses, should have been an interceding prophet. He should have been. He should have been interceding for the people of Nineveh. But instead of rejoicing when God's mercy and his grace are shown, you, you don't see Jonah excited about it, do you? you look at chapter 4. What's Jonah doing? It's a pity party. He's pouting. More than that, he's angry. He is mad that God didn't destroy these people here. And instead of being like Moses with the Israelites and being willing to go 40 days without food or water... Jonah's not doing that. No, he leaves the Ninevites up to themselves. They'll have to intercede to God for themselves. He's not going to help them. But the good news for us is that we have a righteous king, un unlike the unrighteous kings of Assyria or Israel. As we saw last time, this righteous king covers us in the garments of his righteousness. So instead of attempting to rely on our own fallible works, we can in the words of Philippians 3, 8 to 9, count them as rubbish and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that, that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So the fact of the matter is that we have a righteous king who doesn't run away from his intercession for us. The fact that his righteousness means our salvation 
results in a rightful response to worship, to rejoice. So what can we do when we realize this, that we have such a righteous king who rescues perishing sinners? Rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice that his righteousness is enough for you. Rejoice that his intercession is always present. Rejoice that he has delivered you from such a precarious situation. Secondly, we revere the greater Jonah who resolves God's justice and mercy. Revere the greater Jonah who resolves God's justice and mercy. So what do we mean by this? Well, Jonah knew that the Ninevites were on the brink of perishing. He knew that they rightly deserved to perish. But the tension that we wrestle with throughout the book of Jonah is the tension between God's mercy and God's justice. How will God resolve this? I mean, there's no question that the Ninevites deserved God's wrath. They deserved God's justice. They were incredibly evil. But the fact of the matter is that all, Jew or Gentile, rightly deserve God's judgment. Now, the Ninevites didn't ask to see a list of all the ways they had sinned against God's law. They didn't dispute it. Nothing in the text, no one in the text says, God, I'm going to challenge that. I'm not really as bad as you're making me out to me. They all perfectly accept that. Remember that the Ninevites didn't grow up in Sunday school, did they? They didn't go to church. They didn't even have a copy of God's Word. But they still knew they were guilty. In Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Paul helps us understand why that is when he says, For the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts excuse, accuse or even excuse them. So some of us may wonder, how fair is it that God brings justice against people who have not heard the gospel in the same way as others? But notice something in the story. No one challenges that. No one objects to God doing that. Now, if the Ninevite Gentiles are guilty and deserving of God's justice, then how much more are Jonah and the Israelites? They have been given, according to Romans 3, 1 through 3, two incredible blessings. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, or the law, and circumcision, which marked them as, God's, as members of God's covenant community. So being entrusted with the law was a huge blessing to them. The law was their schoolmaster, their guardian to lead them to Christ. Secondly, the Jews were given the great blessing of circumcision. Now, that may not sound like a great blessing to some of you, but it really was a, a huge blessing. So this cutting off of the organ of procreation, or part of the organ, I should say, through which the seed came reminded the Jews, that, reminded the Jews of the promise of the, of the coming seed of the woman who would redeem and restore humanity and how God included them in that promise. So circumcision, as well as the law, was a great blessing to the Jews. So in light of those two realities, those two privileges, the Jews should have placed their faith and hope in the coming Messiah and responded to God in repentance and in mission to the nations. However, they were resisting God. They were placing themselves in, either, in even greater danger than the Ninevites were. Now, the Bible makes it very clear that 
All of us, whether Jew or Gentile, are rightfully deserving of God's justice. So Colossians 2.14, for example, explains that there is a record of debt that stands against every single one of us. Think of it as an IOU. All of us were born into this world with an IOU to God. I owe you my perfect loyalty and allegiance and obedience. But in the words of R.C. Sproul, we've committed cosmic treason. We've broken that. Therefore, God is just in punishing all of us. Now, in chapter 4, Jonah has been really wrestling with this tension between God's mercy and his justice. And so God is going to use an object lesson to show Jonah, be careful what you want. Be careful what you're asking for here. We'll get to that in a little bit. Um, But in the meantime, Jonah really is just expressing how he's struggling with this. He's very unhappy with God for expressing his mercy and not his justice, or at least seemingly withholding his justice. So Jonah, it says, is greatly displeased there at the beginning of chapter 4. This verb for displeased, it's closely related to other occurrences of evil within the, the book. In other words, Nineveh's evil has led to the Lord threatening evil upon the city. The citizens have repented of the evil, and so the Lord is not going to bring evil upon them. But ironically, the fact that the Lord would relent becomes a great evil for Jonah. Now, Jonah is not only displeased, he's also angry. So to, to be angry is to burn. So even as the Lord has quenched his anger, Jonah has only begun to kindle his anger. So what's Jonah do? Well, we see here in chapter 4, he he prays. Sound like a good thing? Anybody think praying is a bad thing? Well, it shouldn't be a bad thing unless we're praying, unless our prayer is filled with a lack of mercy and love. And that's what we see in Jonah's prayer here in chapter 4. So in Jonah's prayer, the same mercy that he thanks for his deliverance now has become the same mercy that he's criticizing for sparing Nineveh. So he does open the prayer with, O Lord, the same cry the sailors had when Jonah was perishing. But the sad thing is, what's more of a disaster than the ship sinking is Nineveh being spared. Jonah now tells us why he was hesitant to go to Nineveh in the first place. He's concerned with the Lord's character. He was afraid that God would show mercy at the expense of his judgment. So he references Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. That's the classic confession where Moses also described God's character. And sadly, Jonah prefers death over living in a world where his enemies are pardoned by God. He's in a sense attempting to manipulate the Lord here. He's really saying, God, I'm giving you an ultimatum. Either choose them or you choose me. So while Moses laid his life on the line, pleading for the Lord to spare the Israelites, in the same way, in fact, but in a different way, Jonah is now trying to do the same thing, except it's to force God to destroy them. Now, God could have been very hard. He could have responded very strongly against Jonah for challenging him like this, right? When you look at that there in chapter 4, and Jonah's just like, God, just, I just want to die here. I mean, God could have come down very strongly on him, but, but he doesn't. God is very gracious. Just notice how he just asks him a question. Do you do well to be angry? Just, just a simple question like that. Well, what's Jonah do? 
Well, Jonah gives God the silent treatment. He moves in his rebellion even further. He goes east of the city. In the book of Genesis, eastward movement is often symbolic of a people's departure from God. So, east out of the Garden of Eden, east toward the Tower of Babel. Here's Jonah going east into the desert. His flight from God is leading him to an inhospitable place, the desert, again symbolizing his spiritual state. So Jonah sits in the, sh- in the shade, he wants to be comfortable, and he wants to see what will happen to the city. So there's still two possible outcomes. One outcome is that the Ninevites would quickly turn away from God. So maybe their repentance is, is just very short-lived. In a couple days, they're going to forget about it, they're going to go back to normal, and God's justice will come and wipe the city out, and Jonah can witness that. But the other outcome is that the Lord would do what he uh, had done for Jonah, or or for Nineveh in the first place, that he would change his mind again. So maybe Jonah's kind of holding out hope that the Lord will be like, you know what, I know I I relented to show you mercy, but I changed my mind. I'm going to relent again, and now I'm going to give you justice. So Jonah is holding out to see which one of these it it could be. Now God's point in all of this is not that anyone is deserving of his mercy. No, God's point is that he is patient, overflowingly, exceedingly extending abundant mercy that's not limited to a certain group of people. And if Jonah has the right to be angry over the loss of a plant that he did nothing to cause to grow or to flourish or anything, then how much more so does God have the right to show mercy on people he has created? So how does that all relate to the greater Jonah? the one who resolves God's mercy and justice? It can seem, now it can seem like in the book of Jonah, God's um, mercy is put above his justice. But if we look in the big picture, that's not the case. That is not the case. So it's true that God does not punish the Ninevites here, but the text never says that God pardons their sins. So the big question of the Bible is, How can God pass over sin? How can God do that? In the Old Testament, we have animal sacrifices. And those animal sacrifices served as a temporary covering, but they were always meant to point to the true sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And it's at the cross where we see this tension of God's mercy and His justice being resolved as Jesus Christ takes both the justice and the judgment we deserve so that God can extend His mercy to us. So how do you respond to a greater Jonah like this who is willing and sufficient to take God's justice so that we could have His mercy? Revere Him. Worship Him. Had we not had this greater Jonah we would have all rightly had to experience the full wrath and justice of God. Now, as you've probably been noticing, Jonah has some major issues he needs help with, right? Any questions about that? This is one angry dude at times, right? He needs a lot of help, and that leads us to our third point. Run to the greater Jonah who changes us from the inside out. Run to the greater Jonah who changes us from the inside out. So there's another big question in the book of Jonah, and that question is, who needs saving? Who really needs saving? I mean, at first glance, it can seem like the sailors do. Clearly, in our text today, the Ninevites do. But I think overall, we can see Jonah 
needs some help. Jonah needs saving. And the author of the book wants the Israelites to understand that they too are like Jonah in need of a heart change. God has been at work throughout this book changing people. He took the pagan sailors and changed them to recognize that he was that he is the true God. He's working in the Ninevites to produce repentance and for them to recognize as well that he is the true God. And he's going to show Jonah that Jonah needs saving from his own selfishness, his own sin, his own lack of love and mercy toward others. This message should hit home to the Israelites and especially to us as well. So I believe that it's very important to show that God seeks to rescue Jonah from himself. After, after his prayer in chapter 4, God could have again taken the hammer to Jonah and really smashed him, but he doesn't. God answers him gently. So what does God do? God says, I'm going to use an object lesson to show Jonah the question that he's been wrestling with and to show him who, he needs, who Jonah really needs saving from. So God appoints a plant, a plant to grow to shade Jonah. Just as the fish was used as a means to deliver Jonah, so was a plant used to deliver him from his argument against God. So get this, God is not afraid to use anything to save Jonah from Jonah. God's not afraid to use anything to save Jonah from Jonah. And guess what? God's not afraid to use anything to save you from you. He's not afraid to use anything in your life to save you from your own sin and selfishness and anger and lack of love and all of these things that are wrong with us. So how does God do this? I mean, one question we have is, why does Jonah need the shade of a plant when he built himself a hut? Isn't a hut enough? Well, I think there's two reasons why the shade of the plant is so important. So first, God is using the plant to remind Jonah that the shelter Jonah needs is the one that God provides, not the one that Jonah builds. Okay, so, so God's shelter, the plant, that represents God's gracious mercy and abundant provision to Jonah. Secondly, the plant will also deliver Jonah from his perishing state. So nothing Jonah builds can deliver him in the way that he needs. And those things are true for us as well, right? No shelter we build, no uh, covering we make can rescue us or self-atone for our sins or provide the, the help that we need to shield us and protect us. Nothing we do can, can create that. Is, that. is that clear? It takes a work of God to do that. Just like in the Garden of Eden, Eve tries to cover herself up with the fig leaves and what, what, how well does that work? Not at all. We cannot atone for these things. We need the shelter from God that only he can provide. Now, in verse 6, we read that the plant was to save him from his discomfort. I mean, think about this. We have a God who cares so greatly for such a complainer like Jonah. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I were God, I would have a hard time thinking that of providing any kind of help for him. Like, man, this guy complains so much. He's He's not willing to listen to me. The last thing I'm going to do is help him out in any way by giving him some shade. But that's not God. God cares enough to provide him shade. So Jonah is in discomfort even if he's in the shade. That's that's the same word used for evil throughout this book. So not only does Jonah need deliverance from the sun, but more importantly, he needs deliverance from the evil that is within him. And right now, he's in no better shape than the people of Nineveh that he's criticizing. 
So Jonah's response to the plant is to rejoice. He's happy. Notice that when Jonah gets mercy, he's very glad. But when others get mercy, Jonah's not so happy. He's angry. Okay, so that's the first part of God's uh, object lesson is to send the plant. The second part, though, is to send a worm, to send a worm. So while the plant would symbolize God's salvation, the worm would symbolize God's judgment. So the worm is going to attack the plant and win over the plant, thus symbolizing this victory in a, in a sense of mercy um, or of judgment over mercy. Okay, so it's judgment over mercy as the worm attacks the plant, the plant withers and dies. Because remember, that's what Jonah wants. That's what he wants with the Ninevites. He wants judgment over mercy. And so God says, okay, that's what you want. Let's try that out on you to see how much you like that. So through the object lesson of this plant, uh, the worm attacks the plant. The plant begins to wither. Then the next day, um, God sends a wind just like we've been having, except really hot, a scorching wind, a cutting wind. The word means to plow or to cut. So God is using the wind to cut down Jonah in his stubbornness. Now, as I've mentioned before, Jonah knows the law. He knows the demands of a holy God to perfectly keep the law. And at this point in redemptive history, the Israelites have had centuries to study the law, to understand how to keep it. They've seen good examples of this. They've seen bad examples of this. Uh, They know the need for the law and the importance of it. But they also know while the law highlights God's gracious character and demands, the law cannot change anyone. The law cannot produce an inward change in anyone. So in the past, there have been indications that God is going to bring about something with an inward change. That's been hinted at at the past. But now in the present context, the prophets have been more vocal that God is going to do even something greater, that God is going to do what the law could not do. In Ezekiel 36, for example, Ezekiel speaks of the circumcision of the heart, hearts that were filled with hardness and could not obey the gospel will be replaced by a new heart ones that love God and ones that can obey God. So what Jonah and the people need is a circumcised heart, a heart that can obey God. These circumcised hearts, hearts of flesh instead of stone, will come in the new covenant. But the question still arises or remains of, how will this happen? Who is able to bring in a heart circumcision that's so necessary so that people can be changed from the inside out? There was some understanding that This change would be brought by someone from the line of David, but it was not as clear as to who that person would be. That is, until we arrive in the New Testament, when the greater Jonah emerges on the scene, promising an inside-out change agenda. So this greater Jonah confronts people with the demands of God's law and their ability, their inability to fulfill it, but he does not leave them there. No, Jesus, the greater Jonah, has arrived to save and to change. So aren't you glad that you yourself aren't left with the demands of the law? Aren't you glad that God loves you enough so that you don't have to carry it all out yourself? The question for all of us is, how alike Jonah are we? Do we see our true need of God to break into our hearts and rescue us from our sinful and selfish ways? Or do we resist him, thinking that we're really not that bad? 
So what's sad in the story of Jonah is this continual running away from God. Jonah runs away in the beginning and doesn't seem to move any closer in the end. It's hard for rebellious prophets to acknowledge that they are wrong and they need to respond in repentance. But it's hard for us as well, isn't it? Especially those of us who know Scripture well, who know the Bible well, and the truths of the Lord. It's hard to respond in repentance. So Jonah, running away from the only hope he has of true change, we do have a greater Jonah who runs toward us. He isn't put off by our selfish attitudes, by our hypocrisy, by the wrong attitudes that we so often have to others. Praise the Lord for that. He isn't repulsed by the stink of our sin that's worse than the stink of any fish. He isn't so scared by our anger when we don't get our own way. He doesn't sit in silence watching and secretly rooting that we will fail. No, this greater Jonah loves us enough to step into the mess of our lives. He loves you gently. I mean, he loves you enough to gently correct you, but to firmly correct you and to challenge you in any area you are not like him. He saves you from the inside out, not simply making you a functional Pharisee, but truly, truly changing you from the inside out. So run, Run to the greater Jonah, who will gladly save you from your sinful self. Run. The story of Jonah ends in an almost unexpected way. It kind of leaves us hanging, doesn't it? We, we don't know how Jonah will respond. He's, he's asked a question, and, and we don't know how he answers, but that's meant to get us to think about how we will respond, which leads us to our fourth point, respond to the greater Jonah's mercy, grace, and pity with love and compassion toward others. Respond to the greater Jonah's grace, mercy, and pity with love and compassion toward others. So you would think that in light of this exceedingly great mercy and grace and pity that God has shown him, that Jonah would be the first and foremost example of showing that to others. But that's not the case. Again, instead of going to the king of Nineveh himself to personally call the king to repentance, we don't see that. We see him at the edge of the desert, secretly rooting that for God's destruction. And again, sadly, the person who knew God's love and mercy the best was the one who displayed it the worst. But Jonah didn't wake up one day and find himself in that place. He didn't just suddenly wake up and find himself there. No, over time, he gradually took his eyes off the Lord. He put them on himself he allowed the desires in his own heart to rule and control him instead of the Lord. Instead of being a honeycomb that oozed God's mercy and grace, he became really a sponge that sucked it up for himself. The reality of it, of it is, is that any of us can end up in the same place as Jonah did. We who know God's love and mercy the greatest can be some of the most unkind and difficult people. Most of us don't struggle giving others who are just like us love and grace and compassion, but I'm sure all of us struggle in some sense with someone in our life who is different from us, someone who is hard out there. So what can you do to avoid ending up in the same place as Jonah? What can you do? Well, first and foremost, don't take your eyes off the greater Jonah. Keep your eyes on him. For every look you take at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Secondly, remember the depth of your sin against Jesus and how far less others have sinned against you. But what if you've blown it? I mean, what if you're here today recognizing, 
I'm a lot more like Jonah than I really should be. Where do I go from here? Well, you can have hope. Hope in knowing that Jesus doesn't give up on people. He gives new opportunities. Just think of how he does this, whether it's in the life of Jonah or in the life of others. So Jonah was very unique among the prophets for receiving a second chance. I mean, prophets were judged more severely than others due to their role. But Jesus and God gave him a second chance. In Matthew 16, 17, uh, we see Peter referred to as the son of Jonah. Some think that he's referring to an abbreviated, son of, uh, abbreviated form of John, um, the name given to Peter's father. This isn't the case. Uh, Jesus is creating a pun that refers to the runaway prophet. So Jesus may be recalling Peter's flight from his calling as an apostle that we start to see in Matthew 16 where he denies that Christ's ministry will end in crucifixion. Like Jonah, uh, Peter receives a second opportunity to follow the way of the cross. You see that there in John 21, verses 15 to 19. Like Jonah, Peter is not excited about going to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 10. But what's fascinating is that Peter receives this vision to go to the Gentiles where? At Joppa, the same place Jonah fled so that he didn't have to go to the Gentiles. And so I love seeing how God in his redemptive plan uses second chances, second opportunities, and uses people who fail him at various times and isn't done with him. So the greater Jonah continues to use Jonah's like us in his redemptive plan. But the good news is we don't have to remain stuck. Because of the greater Jonah, we can respond in mercy, grace, and compassion. So let's recap what we've seen from these two weeks here. We've seen that Jesus, as the greater Jonah, is the ultimate example of God's grace to rebellious sinners. We can rejoice in the righteousness of a greater Jonah who rescues perishing sinners. We can revere the greater Jonah who resolves God's justice and mercy. We can run to the greater Jonah who changes us from the inside out. And we can respond to the greater Jonah We can respond to his mercy, grace, and pity with love and compassion toward others. Let's pray to that end. Our dear Heavenly Father, as we end on this note, we know that it's really not an ending. We know that like the book of Jonah, it it ends openly with the question of how will we respond in light of what we've heard? So how do Jonah and the Israelites respond to the message that they heard through the story of Jonah? And how will we today respond in, w- in light of what we've heard about God's justice and mercy and compassion and love that he's displayed to others? Will we harden our hearts? Will we refuse to display mercy and compassion toward others? Will we refuse to be on mission for God, instead settling for our own comfort? Or will we go? Or will we respond in worship and in love to the greater Jonah who changes us from the inside out? Oh, Lord, may all of us today, no matter where we've been at, in light of you, I pray that you give us the grace to respond in the right way. It's in your name we pray. Amen.